Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 14th, 2015. This is episode 1693 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Monday, and it's uh, you know the day we have a listener feedback show. This is where I answer your questions, respond to your links, comments, news stories, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, and sometimes I'm actually responding to things I've seen you guys tell me in the comments on the blog or Facebook or what have you, but most of it comes from email. If you want to send an email to me to be included in a show like this, or just for my review, send it to jack at com and make sure you put the following in the subject line, TSPC. TSPC, as in The Survival Podcast. Anything you want after that. That kind of tags it and makes you go to a special folder where it gets screened. Uh, before we get into your feedback for this week, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason, directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey guy Gleason. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. 
That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com and if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1693, because the episode 1693, I have three from Alex Shrug today. We have Penn's plan for peace and a short victorious war. We have the failing Quaker oat harvest and the mass migration. We have the Amish split from the Mennonites. But I'll read the first one for you today. Penn's plan for peace and a short victorious war because... Boy, are there lessons for the modern day in here. William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania as a Quaker, and the despairs of the war in Europe. Francis pushed into the Holy Roman Empire to create a defensive buffer zone for itself. The treaties make it unclear where the legal border is, but legal or not, the remaining nations, including England, have formed the Grand Alliance to oppose Francis' incursion. The fighting has been nowhere near as bad as the Thirty Years' War, but many of the refugees have escaped Pennsylvania. William Penn contends that the modern war stems from inequities between states that have no way to be resolved except through aggressive use of force. He proposes a special court of parliament to resolve these inequities so the nations will have an alternative to war. He is not posing a, proposing a federation nor the United States of Europe. He's suggesting an official body that can define borders and resolve disputes before war ensues. Eventually the war of Grand Alliance, the, the, the war of the Grand Alliance will grind to a halt as the economy of European nations deteriorate, but for now the war drags on. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us, the reality is that war was considered an acceptable way to expand one's tax base and divert the population from revolution. In 1984, the Russo-Japanese War started because the Russian Minister of the Interior said, quote, what this nation needs is a short, victorious war to stem the tide of revolution, end quote. In the 1980s, the Argentinian economy was in turmoil yet again, so they started a war with the U.K. over the Falkland Islands. It was ironic that Margaret Thatcher had recently offered to lease the Falkland Islands to Argentina with an option to buy. But once the war started, she had no choice but to kick their backsides. 
Incidentally, sales of the British warplanes skyrocketed after they won. The Harrier jump jet had been a bit of a joke because it was slow compared to the French Mirage jets that Argentina was using, but 20 Mirages took a nosedive in that war versus one Harrier. Recently, after the terror attacks in France, I was informed by the news media that France had finally joined the fight against terror by bombing ISIS in Syria. But I remember France bombing ISIS almost a year ago with their new fighter jet. War sales always pick up after a weapon is proven in battle. This was not French revenge for the terrorist bombing. It was an attempt to boost sales, and the news media accommodated France the same way that they accommodate McDonald's with their burgers when they need a boost. Um, yeah, I mean, here's my take on this. Throughout history and even today, war is generally seen as an acceptable option. It's not necessarily seen as the first option, but it's also not seen as something we just don't do unless we have to defend ourselves. Going and bombing other countries is considered something that there's a procedure to do properly, as though there can ever be a proper procedure to drop bombs on children and women and other people. But, Jack, we only use specialized munitions that target... Yeah, bull. Bull. All right, there's, there's enough photographic evidence of what's happening in Syria and all around the world underneath bombs of whatever you want to call this coalition uh, today. And that the other side of this, and something that doesn't get talked about very often, people often talk about the fact that war, there's war profits, oil companies making money, uh, but arms deals. Arms deals are a direct result, as Alex infers here, from warfare. And not just because, well, obviously, Jack, if you're a country, you might need to defend yourself. And if you can't build your own jet, you might have to buy one from a country that can, you know, and then maybe pay them to come over and train your pilots so they can actually fly the daggone thing. And not alone, not just that, like how to maintain it. But that's not what I mean. I, I mean, literally, it's like advertising. Um, once a weapon is proven in battle and its, 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 its capabilities are known, And it kind of has a track record, so to speak. It's, it's, it's like a car winning, you know, an award. Oh, look, or winning a race or something like that. Oh, now it's, it, it's more of a viable product. And the amount of money made on war today is insane. It's massive. And it, it doesn't really help anybody except the people that are profiting. What I find interesting about Penn is instead of having force applied through war, he wanted force applied through government. To me, I think this is the way that anybody who's rational and logical should feel about war. It's not acceptable, period. War is unacceptable. I think we should all be anti-war. I think anti-war people have gotten painted with a, a very broad brush. And I just would like to, the people that, like if I say anti-war, you cringe a little bit or something like that, like, commie pinko or whatever, ask you a question. If you're not anti-war, what is the only thing you can be as in an alternative, and that would be pro-war. Pro-war. I mean, you're for war. You really need to think about that because, you know, it's one of the things as a, a prior service member of the United States Army that took me a while to get to. I mean, I remember I first found Lou Rockwell and I read, you know, anti-government and you know, anti-state and anti-war. A little, little twinge there, right? That's how deep the programming is. How could you possibly be pro-war? Now, don't get me wrong. If you're actually aggressed upon, I believe you use superior force immediately with, with undue haste to create a, a short, victorious war. I, I really do. But the interventionist things that we do and seeing 
bombs and missiles and guns and bullets and soldiers and sailors and marines and airmen is a way to enforce our will on other parts of the world, not much good has come from that. Not much good has come from that at all in the last 50 years. We, we seem to have made the world a, a, a much worse place, and we haven't done a lot for ourselves as a people, though we've done a lot for ourselves as the people that make the money and control the money and run the government and get all of these huge programs to surveil our own people uh, past. By the way, have you noticed that my prediction about France has come true even through the San Diego shootings? That... Even though the, the, the Obama administration, of course, rattled a little bit about gun control because they have to take that opportunity. They know they can't get anything done. But what's being advanced by both the left and the right now is a greater need for surveillance and technology. That that's, that's the solution to this problem. I, I told you, they're going to use it as an excuse to, to, to take more of your liberty. So what do you do about it? Keep building that better life, guys. Because this stuff... We can look back through the lens of history and see it's not going to change anytime soon. It's up to the people to change. And we can only do that one person, one family, one community at a time. And, uh, again, I'd, I'd like to throw out a little challenge for you today. If you hear the words anti-war and you see that as negative, I would like you to take, take the next week and deeply consider what that means, that you feel that that's a bad thing for a person to be anti-war. Anti-war is not anti-soldier. Anti-war... It is is not even anti-defense, but it's like the belief is that it should be the absolute last thing that you rely upon is killing other people, and that you really should only do so in defense. Again, if the word, I'm just going to say it one more time, anti-war has that little tick in the back of your neck like it used to for me. Do some self-examination on it. Trust me. It'll lead you somewhere. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you can help support the show and the work we do here. To learn more, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and I'll leave it at that for today because I want to get into uh, your questions and feedback. Since I did the show on simple home brewing uh, of, of meads and ciders and fruit wines, uh, I've seen hundreds, literally hundreds of pictures of people trying it on Facebook, and that's awesome. And the number one thing I'm getting back from people is, okay, it's turning nice and clear now, the, the balloon's deflating or the airlock's not going, and what do I do? And I did cover that in the show, but I want to maybe cover it a little bit better and then throw out an invitation for tomorrow's show. So the number one thing that you want to do after it's, it's kind of starting to clear for you is decide, am I willing to just let this fermentation finish in the bottle it's in, or do I want to rack it and let it continue to clear and slow down? And a lot of your ciders and fruit wines and stuff, you can do that, but with your mead you should. After about 30 to 60 days of the mead, you want to rack it into a secondary fermenter, and that's when you want to fix a proper airlock. You can buy airlocks for a dollar on Amazon.com. You need to buy a stopper that will fit the, the top of the bottle or container that you're using to do secondary fermentation in. And while I'm okay with secondary fermenting in plastic, I'd really like to go to glass there. And with meads, where you might be t taking that thing, you know, if it's a small mead, a quick mead, a session mead, you know, something that's a lighter gravity, lower alcohol, you might, you know, do that 60 days and, 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 and rack it to a secondary to strain off any of the residue and what have you. And you might leave it there for 30 days and bottle it if it's clear. You know, you can. Uh, it'll probably be okay. It depends. <laughs> You'll learn as you go. Um, but 
it really, it's a good idea to, to, to run your meads for four to six months. Now, meads, of course, are the stuff made with high amounts of honey. Uh, and even if they have fruits or other things like sizes or an apple cider with, with honey, it's probably a good idea to get them in the glass, get them as close to full as possible, and fix a proper airlock and let them finish. With your ciders, you can often put them into a secondary just to get them off that thick layer of yeast. Put them into a second bottle. And this, there's no reason this can't be another plastic bottle if you're doing the one-gallon quick method that we've, we've been discussing for experimentation. And let them sit for another week. And they'll really get clear then. And there'll be a lot less sediment on the bottom. At that point, you want to bottle it. okay? And the way that you want to do that is it makes a lot of sense. Again, get another full one-gallon or larger container and use a siphon, and I really recommend buying a racking cane. You don't need a lot of specialized equipment, but a racking cane that has, and they make short ones to go in the one-gallon bottles instead of the big long ones for five-gallon batches. If you can do five-gallon batches, get the big one, but I recommend a little one for these little batches. It's just so much easier to do. You put a hose into it, put that hose into the bottom of the container you're racking it to, and push it down. It'll start a siphon. It'll 100% transfer. And you can kind of tilt the bottles, it gets down to the bottom, but as soon as you start to see any sediment going with it, just go ahead and kill the siphon and that little bit in the bottom, it's, it's, it's sacrificial to the alcohol gods, okay? You can swirl it around and drink it and get some B12, but I don't think you'll really enjoy it, but you can. When you have it in that second bottle now, we can either go ahead and use that bottle to put it into to permanent bottles, or we can let it set for another week or two to, to finish out a little bit more and let everything settle out. And again, if we get to that point where it's been in the secondary, it's probably a good idea to go back to another brand new bottle. This way we're not going to take all of the stuff that's settled out on the bottom and put it into our bottles and get a lot clearer product that way, a lot cleaner tasting product that way. And then you want to get a little device called a bottling wand. You can get these on Amazon. They're a few bucks. You put your hose onto the bottling wand and onto the racking cane. You push it down into a bottle and you start it just like you do. And the, the little uh, racking, the bottling wand does. It's got a little thing on the bottom that works by pressure. You push it down, it lets it lets the liquid flow. You pull it up, it stops. That way, you're not like pinching the hose or some crap like that. And you, when you fill it, you can fill it right up to the top of the bottle. And when you pull the racking or the, the bottling wand out, you end up with almost the perfect amount of headspace, okay, for your bottle. Now, what you have to decide at this point is, do I want to bottle this for a still product, like a still cider, like a wine, or do I want it sparkling? If you want it still, you just put it in the bottle, put the caps on it, set it somewhere in like a cool dark area, and chill it before you open it, and you're done. If you want to carbonate it, which I think is great to do with fruit ciders and, and apple ciders and all, it really brings a lot more out to them. You want to add some more sugar. Now, I'm not going to talk about big batches. I'm going to talk about small batches, one gallon. My favorite way when I'm doing that small a batch is I buy 32-ounce uh, swing top bottles. So you need a bottle capper or anything. And I fill those, just like I said, but before I put the – and you got to do it before. If you do it after, it makes a mess. It starts fizzing right away. A, for a 32-ounce bottle, I use one-and-a-half teaspoons of sugar, just table sugar. And I put the stuff onto that, and I cap the bottle, and it needs about two weeks to bottle condition. It'll get cloudy. And what happens is that sugar wakes up the yeast, builds up pressure, and that pressure uh, is, is built up by the CO2 being released from gobbling up that little bit of sugar. And what that does is then pressurize the bottle and 
the CO2 dissolves into the liquid, and then when you open it, you have a carbonated beverage. Okay? And, again, I'm using a teaspoon and a half, but basically I use a half a teaspoon per roughly 12 ounces that's on the bottle. A lot of people use 22-ounce bottles. That's not really 24 ounces, but one teaspoon, and, and that works pretty well. When I do larger batches, I either put it in my keg and use pressure from the, the, the kegerator system to force carbonate it, or if I'm going to bottle a five-gallon batch, I boil up a little sugar and water. Uh, generally, it's, it's about a half a cup to three-quarters of a cup, depending on what you're doing, to a five-gallon batch. You add that, and then you proceed and bottle, just like I said. Okay, But for these small batches where you're only doing a few bottles, that's the best way to do it. If you're doing a sparkling cider, etc., and you, you want to use a wine bottle with a cork, you need to use a champagne-style cork with wire down. Okay, I prefer, and I've made plenty of sparkling meads and plenty of sparkling ciders and plain old beer bottles with a wing capper. As long as it's a returnable bottle and you don't overcarbonate, you're not going to have a problem. But I'm telling you guys, the swing top bottles, regardless of size, are so convenient for these small batches. And as I go forward, what I'm going to be doing is I'm testing a bunch of different ciders. And I'm, I'm targeting ciders for five-gallon batches. And when I find a winner for my, my kegerator, I'll make a six-gallon batch. I'll put five gallons into a keg, put that into the kegerator, force carbonate it, let it age in there beautifully in the nice, cool, chilled area, hook it up whenever I want to take some out of it, and take one gallon and bottle it into, uh, depending on how much it really is left, you usually end up with three uh, of the big growler bottles. And that's it. So that's it's a little more complicated than making it, and if you're not sure what to do, check out like homebrew talk and stuff like that. But this is gonna be one of those things. Once you get, you're gonna get your own system down because it could be a mess or it could be easy. Here's my big piece of advice for you: if you're gonna start doing what I am, which is making lots of small batches of meads and ciders and stuff like that for testing, make on a day or bottle on a day. Don't do the don't do both on the same day. It's, it takes too long. It's a bit frustrating. You start to get worn out about it. You know, making it, you can do in half an hour. Bottling probably is going to take you, you know, half an hour or more, depending on how much you're bottling. Plus, you got to clean things a lot more when you're bottling. You got to clean your bottles. Uh, most of the time, people recommend you sanitize your bottles. Use a little bit of star sand for that. Pretty much what I've been doing with my bottles, I put them in the dishwasher. I run the dishwasher on the high heat cycle, the short one. With, uh, with no heat drying and no soap or anything. That's, that's what I do. And I, I don't ever have a problem, though everybody will tell you that's wrong, that you should sanitize everything. I don't. You know, I, I take my siphon hose and I dip it in some boiling water, a little pot of boiling water, and then I set the pot of boiling water up on, on something above the sink and I put the siphon in it and I push it down. I run boiling hot water through the siphon hose and through the wand, the bottling wand. And I dump some some water, boiling hot water on the outside of the wand, and that's it. Um, I've gotten way lazy with my sanitation, and it hasn't bit me yet. So here's my – that was kind of a long segment, but I've gotten so many questions about that. This is my thought for tomorrow's show, a follow-up on small batch mead and cider making – all based on your questions, like a feedback show, but just on mead and cider in small batch. Let's stay away from kegging. Let's stay away from five-gallon batches. Just the stuff from episode 1684. What are your sticking points? Where are you confused? Are you making some? Are you having some problems? Do you have questions about yeast for this or anything like that? Send me your questions. Send them jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com, TSPC Cider. Put that in a subject line. Even though it's for me too, 
or mead, cider or mead, I don't care, but TSP cider or TSPC mead, and that way I'll know they're for that show, and I'll try to do a show tomorrow to answer your questions on that. I'll do a Facebook post follow-up to try to make sure we have enough meat for that show. Let's move on to other stuff today. Next up, just a real quick one from Jason. I, I really enjoy things like we just talked about, like the cider show, because I see people actually doing it. And I don't know if you guys can hear in the background right now, but I've got four gallons of stuff going that are going bloop. Bloop, bloop in the airlocks. Uh, if that is picking up at all on the mic and you're wondering what that faint background noise, that's what it is. But I love that. And I love whenever I see people in this audience doing things and learning and developing skills or getting good results, even in bad situations because of things that they've learned here. And we've had all kinds of stuff. We've had people go, you know, I didn't think I needed a gun, uh, but because listening to you, eventually I got my concealed carry permit and then such and such happened. You know, we had one guy that was on his way back to his car and there were, I think, four men that were pretty big guys that were basically going to shake him down until Mr. Glock appeared and then they weren't such badasses anymore. Um, so that's one of the types of things I mean. This from Jason is a little simpler than that, but simple is the best. When something simple makes your life better, that's something you should be doing because we all can, like a bug out bag. So here's a brief email from Jason. Hi, hey Jack, I just wanted to tell you thank you for your beginning bug out bag episode. My father was recently admitted to the hospital for bypass surgery. I had most of my bag put together as you described. It really saved my butt. I didn't need every anything. I was even giving family, giving my family items from my bag. Thank you for what you do, and I'm looking forward to your video series, Jason. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly why we do the Survival Podcast. That's exactly what it's all about. It really is actual practical applications. Now, what's interesting is I just got this email this morning, and last night I was on Free Talk Live, and we were talking about a lot of different things, basic prepping stuff. And I, I had said just that, that, you know, when someone in your family ends up in a hospital and you have a proper bug out bag, we don't think of that as why we put together bug out bags. We have people doing tactical stuff and going off in the woods and whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. But from a practical standpoint, something like that happening, sleeping next to your kid's bed at the hospital is far more likely or being able to go retrieve an item during a cookout when everybody's getting hit up with bugs and nobody has bug spray and you have insect repellent as part of your kit. Well, then this morning I opened my email and this is what's sitting here. Uh, it, uh, exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, right before I started, about a, a year before I started doing this show, my wife had come to uh, a point with a condition called dry genital neuralgia where she ended up in having to go for a, a surgery in kind of an emergency way. It, I'm not going to get deep into this condition, but it's, it's, it used to be called the suicide disease before there were treatments for it, because it's so painful, people would kill themselves to end the pain. And uh, we we delayed surgery as long as we could. She was very young to have this condition, an unusual uh, age to have this condition. And uh, she took different medications for up to about nine years to the point where they were actually really impacting her life in a negative way, and they were stopping to work. And she went into intractable pain, and I rushed her from one hospital to the next. And, and we were able to, with the help of a, a person from the Trigeminal Neurology Association, who's here locally, a wonderful charity, get her into um, the, the best hospital. I mean, the absolute best hospital you could be in in Dallas-Fort Worth. And the best doctor to do a very serious surgery called microvascular decompression. And I ended up at the foot of her bed for two days before I finally went home. 
I had nothing. I wasn't a prepper. I, I hadn't re-totally awakened yet. Um, I had a basic bag, but not like the kind of stuff we talk about today. And, and I remember all the way from back then thinking, you know, this is one of those reasons to continue this journey back. And, um, you know, a year later, I'm, here I go, I'm, I'm launching the Survival Podcast, and we had put a lot of these protocols and places into our life. And what I realized at that point is I had basically a go bag at home that was all designed around the tactical concepts and backpacking concepts and stuff like that. And it didn't really apply to the situation that I was in. It would have been better that I had had it with me than not, but it just wasn't... Like when, when everything went down with that and, and my wife was screaming in agony, I couldn't think until I got her somewhere. And, you know, I wasn't going to leave until she was through surgery and out the next morning. And once that happened, they had her in ICU. I went home. I got some stuff together. That night I stayed at home because she was knocked out of sleep and I knew she was okay. And I slept like you can't imagine. I mean, just completely exhausted and put some stuff together and came back. And I ended up spending three more days in the hospital with her. Um, and, and, and that was part of my turning, realizing that this kind of stuff needs to be geared not just for, you know, kind of the tactical badass stuff, but for the stuff that actually happens every day to somebody somewhere. And so I'm glad to see that, that that worked out for Jason as well. And thank you for sharing that story, Jason. Uh, this next story, going in, again, totally different direction, lots of variety today. It's from Fox 17 Online, but it's been widely reported. And this comes to me from Kevin in Tennessee. And Kevin says, this is an article about a man being prosecuted for distributing parent pamphlets explaining jurors' rights outside of the courthouse. I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw what the prosecutor said. Love his use of the word anarchy, too. Our world is full of ignorance. It's so frustrating. I'm grateful to have the TSP community to lean on. Uh, I am as well, too, Kevin. But instead of reading this this article, since it actually was part of a televised uh, response, I'm going to go ahead and play the recording of the news report on it, and I'll come back with my thoughts on it after that. A father of seven is facing up to five years in prison for handing out pamphlets on jury rights in front of the courthouse. It's a story we first brought you earlier this month. Keith Wood was back in court this morning for a hearing, which was postponed, but we are finally hearing from the prosecutor on why he doesn't want to be called as a witness in this case. Fox 17's Dana Chiklis joins us now in studio with the latest. Right, and the Macosta County District Courtroom this morning was just packed, mostly with supporters of Keith Wood, the man who told me in front of his family that day that he felt speechless, literally, when he was arrested and then spent 12 hours in jail the week of Thanksgiving, all for passing out those jury rights flyers. Now, the main issue in court today was whether or not the prosecutors will be called as witnesses, and if they are, if this goes to trial, the Attorney General's office will have to appoint a special prosecutor to take over the case. I believe based on that that there is good cause to adjourn the preliminary examination for today. As soon as Judge Boer adjourned Keith Wood's preliminary exam, both parties addressed whether Macosta County prosecutors will take the stand. Prosecutor Brian Thede says he's not a necessary witness, but if he's called to testify, he says he'll tell the jury that the pamphlets Wood passed out could create a lawless nation. This just says ignore the law, ignore the facts, do what you your conscience wants, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, well, we could have the, the, the jury who thinks that jihad is righteous, and if the San Bernardino shooters had not been killed, they'd say, let's acquit. We would have a lawless nation 
if people were to vote their conscience. The judge quieting boos here from Wood supporters. Defense attorney Dave Coleman received applause when he said he understands, quote, we don't want anarchy, but then read the Michigan criminal jury instructions saying jurors can vote their conscience. Quote, in the end, your vote must be your own, and you must vote honestly and in good conscience. It's in the jury instruction, for goodness sake. That's given every single time in every single criminal case in this state. But back to the key argument at stake here. Coleman says the prosecution must be called as witnesses, saying police reports show Thede ultimately directing the arrest of Wood back on November 24th. These are all points that make it very clear that they are necessary witnesses. But Mr. Thede directly questioned our client in the hallway he's, when he's brought in. He's not Mirandized. I don't know what he asked him. I'm not entitled to call him as a witness. While this is all going on before the judge orders him to be arrested. Arguments spilled into why Thede believes Wood tampered with the jury, saying he passed out flyers because he knew of another case. But the defense says the charges violate free speech. The Yoder case, he's, he's the only time we ever have anybody show up to pass out pamphlets, and the only jury to be, be picked that day is the Yoder jury. Our defense is a First Amendment defense. Our client has the right of free speech to hand out this pamphlet with legal information. And frankly, under Brandenburg and other cases, he could have been advocating criminal activity. Wood stands firm, saying he was not targeting jurors and wants the charges dropped. I don't believe I did anything wrong, so I, I want all of the charges dismissed. I mean, I, I truly believe in my heart of hearts I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't break the law. So they need to drop all of the charges against me. Keith there just, of course, wanting these charges dropped. And as of now, we're waiting to hear from the judge who says she'll be issuing a written opinion on each of the people, including the prosecutors here, who are subpoenaed to testify in this case. The next step for the defense, they tell me, is to file a motion asking to dismiss that felony uh, charge, obstruction of justice. They will be doing that in the next week and a half. Of course, we'll stay on top of this case for you and give you all updates. For now, in the studio, Dana Chiklis, Fox 17 News. So there's there's more to this story that I wanted to make sure that you guys knew about in, in helping you form your own opinion about it instead of telling you what to think because there is, is, is really two issues at play here. Okay, and let's start out with some of the things that happened before this report. The first thing that happened is when this man was arrested and arraigned in court, he was initially offered a plea deal to basically a, a misdemeanor and, and no jail time, that type of thing. When he refused, all of a sudden the prosecutor comes back and wants to put a felony obstruction of justice charge against him. Uh, generally, people don't turn down plea deals unless they believe that they're innocent or believe that they can prove their case as being innocent. Okay, now... Before I go forward with this, I want to say that I'm going to talk about the law and what the law is. Independent of my opinion at some point during this, my opinion initially, so that everybody understands it, nobody misunderstands me, is that what this man did was completely right. And if it was done the way he said it was completely legal, I think it's right no matter what he did, but legal may not be quite as clear depending upon things. You heard the prosecutor talking about a specific case, and the only time we ever had anybody up was for that case, and we were doing jury selection for that case. And what I think the prosecutor feels like is this guy came in to make sure he didn't win that case. Now, I don't know what the case is about. 
I haven't been able to figure that out yet. I'd, I'd like to know what it is. It may very well be something like a drug possession case or something. A case that is specifically weakened by juries knowing they have this right. Okay, now the next thing is, the right of a juror to not vote guilty, even if they think the case has been proven by the state that the guy did it, but they don't feel a crime has been committed in their conscience, is inherent to the United States justice system. It is the ultimate check on power. We, we learn about checks and balances with the three branches in government and all of that stuff in school, but they don't tell you about the additional checks on power. One of the checks on power is that in general, prosecutors, district attorneys, etc., are elected officials. And therefore, if they're, if they're continuously prosecuting cases that technically are illegal, but the public doesn't like it, they can actually be thrown out of office. Another check is on law enforcement. Law enforcement in this country, by our Constitution, cannot be military. And that, that's actually way more important than most people think it is because command structures in military are not lenient to certain things that civilians are. So uh, police officers do have orders, chains of command, and things like that. But it is since it's outside of military jurisdiction, there's no top dog, a thousand miles away, general that can say, I want every soldier cop to do the following today and get me people for doing whatever. This is all localized, so another check on our criminal justice system and our people in power is now you have to get law enforcement to enforce this law. All right, And that doesn't mean that you know cops will routinely not enforce the law, but they will often look the other way. There's a lot of good cops out there that often look the other way for a lot of shit. They really do. As much as I get on cops for being oath breakers, there's a lot of them that do that. There are sheriffs that have come out and said some of these draconian gun laws passed in our state. Not my county. We just won't be looking for that. That doesn't prevent any law enforcement officer from doing it. It doesn't even prevent that sheriff's deputy from going rogue against his sheriff and saying, I'm going to bring this guy in for this. And then once they're in there, just something has to be done. That something has to be done to dealt, be dealt, dealt with it. Okay? But... That is a check as well. Can you get law enforcement to actually enforce the law? Well, they're charged with it. You know, there is a component of this is a free society. Then the, and, and it, where does it become a problem? When they're, in, when they're not enforcing it for some people and enforcing it for others, based on racial divide or wealth divide or money. But in general, if law enforcement just says, we're not really going to worry about people with less than an ounce of pot on them, it's not worth our time, and they do it for everybody, there's not a lot that can be done about it. Unless the people demand it, put in a stricter you know, sheriff, stricter attorney, whatever, okay? It's, 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 not, it's, it's part of the basic system. It's inherent to the system. And then the last check, if you can get the law passed, you can get it signed into law, you can get it past the, the, the court system if it's challenged, it's, it stands as law. You can get it enforced, and you can put somebody in custody for it, and you can try them with a crime. You still have to convict them. And the jury still has the right, in the instructions that they're supposed to be given by the state, to vote their conscience. To vote their conscience. So there is no doubt that what this guy's doing, if done the way he says it is, I'm just standing there in front of the courthouse because it's public space, and it's a perfectly relevant place for this to be done, and I'm just handing out pamphlets for because you're getting the intent here, okay? So that everybody knows about this, then there's no crime committed 
again, now I'm going to get into where we get into legalities where I still think it's okay, I still think it's acceptable, I don't think it should be a crime, but it might be. If they can prove with intent that he showed up on that day specifically for the purpose of contacting jurors that were being selected or already had been selected for that case, and there's a technicality there I'll come back to, to interfere with the state's ability to prosecute the case, they may in fact be able to make a charge of obstruction of justice. Now, hopefully if they do that, ironically, the jury might vote its conscience and still say not guilty. Okay, Because it's difficult to prove the intent. Because if you want to prove intent, you would have to have witnesses saying things like, he was specifically asking if I was on the jury or up for selection or in some way related to this individual case. I don't think they have that or we probably would have heard something about that being presented so far. Um, they would have to, to somehow show with some sort of, of, of evidence, with a good chain of custody, that this individual specifically went there for the purpose of tampering with specific members of a jury to a specific trial. Then I think it gets gray. And I'm not sure how that works out. I'm not a lawyer. But that's the case that's actually being made by the state. Not that the action in and of itself was, was illegal, but the action at the time, in the place, and in the manner in which it was committed was illegal. And again, though, they have to then prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this man's intent was to tamper with a specific jury to interfere with the state's ability to prosecute a case. And that gets very gray. And, and if he can just simply say, well, I, I showed up with uh, 200 flyers, and I gave out one to everybody, and there's tons of people. And if anybody shows up and goes, yeah, he gave me a flyer. Are you on the jury? No. Did, did he ask you about being on jury? No. He just said, I want you to know this and handed it to me. It gets really hard to prosecute him effectively, except here's the deal. A lot of people that are on juries are freaking sheep and just do what the state says. That's why things like the Fully Informed Jury Association exists, to, to break people out of that sleepwalk. Because what judges will often advise the jury is actually completely counter to the truth, and that is that you are only here to judge guilt or innocence according to the law, and does the state make its case or does the defense make its case? Specifically, that you are not allowed to decide for yourself whether or not the law should be a law. But the truth is, you are. Because in the end, anything other than a juror being able to vote any way they want to, in any case, destroys the ability of a jury to be trusted. And that's why it's, you know, if, if a prosecutor is really worried about this, it's up to them to do a good job during jury selection. And if a defendant's attorney is, that's why jury selection exists. That's why both sides get to question jurors. That's why both sides get a certain number of complete vetoes. They can just say, I don't want this juror. And, and no matter what, until you use up how many vetoes you have, they can just turn down a juror, period. That's why all of this exists this way. Now, I know my anarchist friends are like, Jack, you seem very statist right now. I'm not statist anything. I'm explaining to you how the law works, how the system works, and what the rights of the juror, the rights of the accused are, and where you can get into trouble because I think we probably have activists in this audience that would go out and let people know about this. And this is where you have to be careful. We have to be damn sure that we're not specifically targeting a juror. And I think different cities, different states, different counties might have different rules about that. That's a kind of a law that can vary from location to location. And we'd want to know how to do that legally in a way that would protect ourselves. 
To me, the best way to do it would be to sit somewhere with a booth with a proper name and signage and about 50 people in it. Come ask us about jurors' rights. Don't call it nullification. It makes it a lot more complicated because what it seems to me like is this guy pissed off this prosecutor and this prosecutor's gone on a personal mission to make sure this guy pays for it and, and to, up to the point where he insists on being the prosecutor against him because he doesn't want to be called as a witness And my God, we could have jihad be a noble thing and everybody... I mean, that's just the stupidity. The epitome of stupidity. And basically showing his hand that I really don't have anything here other than trying to prove intent based on a thought process. But we'll see where this goes. I'll be interested to see where it goes. Because if this man's found guilty, it's a dangerous precedent. It's a very dangerous precedent. And I don't think it'll happen. I think that's why the plea was offered. And I think they're trying to shake him down and scare him now, is what they're trying to do. So that they'll come back later and go, yeah, you want to take that plea now? Do you? Do you really? I mean, wouldn't it be better than looking at jail time? Because that's the kind of shit the state does. Because what, guys? What does Jack always say and get called crazy for? The state can do nothing without the threat of violence at the point of a gun. And this is another way to prove that. A man informing people of their rights, where he's correct about what their rights are, where his statement to vote your conscience actually matches the state's instructions to its jury in written print, because it doesn't coincide exactly with the will and whims of the state. And in this case, one guy with a heart on, We're going to have the force of the state put on this guy's neck. And he needed fifteen grand to post bond over this. $15,000. $150,000 bond was set on this for handing out flyers on a public space. Let's go ahead and take another one. Just a quick little addition. Some other ways that this could be done where the state could never make a causal link of directly trying to interfere with the jury would be it could be done on, on days that the court is not in session, therefore no jurors are there, but you still have the backdrop of, of the county court. Uh, it could be done in other public spaces that are clearly not connected directly to the justice system. I think it's important for jury, uh, juror rights advocates to realize that your target isn't somebody on a juror na a jury now, and you probably by the letter of law you can't say that it is. It has to be anyone and everyone. And doing things to make it clear is probably a lot better of a way to steer clear of this, especially until we see what happens because of this, because this is going to set legal precedent. Uh, let's do a duck question next. Uh, livestock, right? Hi, Jack. Do you ever get soft-shelled or jelly eggs? If so, uh, if so, what do you do when you have this problem? Currently, I only have two ducks of laying age, and the eggs I get have really soft shells. So soft, if I set them on something hard, they crack. Some days, they don't even have a shell. I have 12 ducks that are going to be ready to lay this spring. 50 chicks coming in February with someone willing to buy all the eggs I can produce, so I need to get this problem solved. The ducks that are laying are two years old and not molting. I have fed conventional 20% multi-flock feed. I've tried three different brands at least three weeks before switching to slowly transitioning between them. They have free choice oyster shells. Any advice would help. Scott from Maine, thanks for all you do, man. This is actually no big deal and is 99% chance that it will rectify itself. And it's probably the case that right now, this time of year, you could have a duck laying and another duck not laying. We have gotten these. They are kind of funky looking. Um, they're almost like a, a, a like a soft, like heavy gauge water balloon type thing. And what you're looking at is basically a, kind of a hiccup in the conveyor belt. So if you actually butcher 
uh, laying female poultry, you'll see this long kind of belt, like almost like a ma like a belt magazine for a machine gun. Doo -doo -doo -doo, except it's you know, it's a very slow machine gun that works every day or every other day. And what you're see what you'll see in that belt looks an awful lot like what you're finding on the ground. And as you go backwards, they're a little bit bigger and more developed, all the way back to really really tiny. And what happens is, is that's on its way to go out of the duck or out of the chicken. It goes through basically an application process that applies a shell to it. But it's soft up until that process happens. And there's a hiccup with that occurring. With what you're feeding her, she's probably not deficient in calcium. Um, I have never seen this last a long time. We've had a lot of ducks seem to do it. Right when they first start laying, and then it kind of goes away. We have a new group coming through, starting to lay. They do this, and it just kind of goes away. We don't have anybody doing it right now, and we've had it happen before. I'm sure we'll happen. it'll happen again. I'm not really going to worry about it. I don't think you should either. If anybody knows anything counter to that, please let me know, or any way that anybody's ever like corrected this as an issue. But I've always seen it as a self-correcting, unusual problem, and I think it's just because you have such a small number of ducks, it looks chronic. You know, it could be like, me having three beehives and losing a hive this year. Well, you lost a third of your hives. Well, I could have had 50 hives and lost one if it was that one that was going to get lost. right? So when we have lower numbers of things, a problem can look a lot worse than it is. And it's if you're going to do things commercially, it's a reason to probably go a little higher with numbers than you think you need to. You know, Right now, it's winter. Our birds are laying less. We had some losses. And we're down to about three dozen eggs a day. And it's barely enough to serve our small customer list and our one big restaurant customer. And, you know, it's like January, late January cannot get here soon enough. We need that, that actual daytime to start laying the ning. We need all these new birds to come into age and start laying. And we need it bad. Um, so, again, I think it's more of a numbers issue. And it could be very well, like I said, that you have one duck laying and one duck not even laying. And that's only one duck producing those. Especially if you're getting like one of these things every day or every other day. But don't sweat it. Just take good care of your birds and the problem will probably go away. If the problem doesn't go away and you have a bird that's basically non-productive, then what I would advise you to do is separate them so you can be damn sure who the culprit is and then cull that one. Because the other one may be just as in a, in a uh, kind of a, a pause, a laying pause. And since she's paused, and that might be the thing, like the other one might kind of be in a pause, but yet the conveyor is still running so to speak. So, Anyway, hope that helps you. Let's take another one. Another little quick one here you can go look at if you want to learn more. Uh, a listener who writes a blog called The Self-Sufficient Path uh, sent me an email about uh, Old Grouch Military Surplus Pioneer Racks. Um, I had this on a while ago, and Old Grouch sold like hundreds of these things in a couple days. Uh, the UPS man had his back breaking, I think, at the pickup. But uh, these are cool little racks, and they hold uh, a Matic a shovel and an axe. And they were designed to go on the top of, uh, of military cut Vs. Uh, and they're like, if you're doing a restoration pro project of a cut V, which is the, the older style military uh, kind of uh, go everywhere trucks, the, the, the general small trucks, the one ton uh, blazers and, and pickup trucks, uh, you, this would be something you'd want. And, uh, but it's also just good for a lot of other things. I bought two of them. I'm not even really sure what I'm going to do with them yet. Uh, though I do have some ideas now that I have this really cool new trailer I bought from a, a local guy. 
about maybe actually attaching them to the trailer. So whenever I drag the trailer somewhere around the property, I have them. Well, this guy had a vehicle, and he wanted to uh, mount them on the rear of his vehicle, and he built a rack for the rack that goes into a two-inch receiver hitch on, on the back of his truck which I think is really cool and just goes in, pins, and done. Uh, very similar to maybe a rack you would see somebody use to haul bicycles uh, behind an SUV or a pickup where they don't want to put them in the back of the truck. So I'll put a link to that, and it's it's really, really clever. Uh, the guy's name is Joe. Again, his website is www. Did I just say that? I hate when people do that. His website is selfsufficientpath.com. I said it because it was written down that way. Guys, when you're talking on podcasts or radio shows or something like that, no need to say www. That's one of my pet peeves, and I just did it. But at least I caught it. Anyway, selfsufficientpath.com. Uh, you can find out more there. And uh, if you didn't get in on the Pioneer Rack deal, and I'm sorry, I said these were for Cuckvies. They're not. They were for Humvees. Um, but if you uh, if you want one of these... You can still get them. They're just nowhere near the deal. I think I got them for you guys for like 24 bucks a piece or something like that. Um, Old Grouch still st does have some on or, on availability. They're like 40 bucks now. So I'll put a link to this article and to the uh, product that, that uses it on Old Grouch, and you can check for other sell resellers and stuff for them. But I think 40 bucks is about the going rate for them. Um, this next one comes to me from uh, Teresa. Teresa says, A few days ago, Reason had an article about Finland experimenting with a universal basic income. The commenters were discussing the idea of doing it here. What are your thoughts? Love everything you do. Uh, Teresa says, if you're interest, interested, here's my contribution to the discussion. I'm trying to run the numbers if we were to do this in the U.S. Seeing this would replace everything, including Social Security, it would need to be more than the current max of $3,350 a month, lest you be called anti-senior. For a married couple, that's $6,700. We are currently living on less than this, including food stamps, not including uh, MA for the kids. Aliens don't qualify. They will begin to self-deport because it will become too expensive to stay. Yeah, we would do that without giving too legal. We have welfare to illegal aliens. Given the utter disaster that is Obamacare and people having such uh, having such extra cash, many more people would run the numbers and realize self-insuring is the way to go, especially if more doctors go to at least a partly cash model. I'm not sure what that would do to the health insurance market or people with chronic disease. I suppose the churches and such could could step up. I would think it would be easy to show you need help because of your diabetes and not because of your uh, because you like the finer things in life. Damn the consequences. I think it would be a force would force property owners to improve rental units because now everyone can afford better and than a cheapest dump. Ownership, at least initially, would increase. That could be good or bad. It would depend on the size of the bubble. It is a lot to think about. Do we really want petitions, politicians figuring it out? If not them, who should come up with the blueprint for this? Uh, let's kill one assertion there that absolutely does not have to be the case if you were to do this. And I'm not advocating doing this. I just want to clear it up. That it would have to be more than Social Security because it replaces everything, including Social Security. There is no reason that you couldn't have a program like this that's age-dependent and you would still have a Social Security-like or state-funded pension or something like that. I'm not advocating that either. I'm just saying there's no reason it couldn't be done. In other words, there's a universal basic income that actually goes to a higher point when a person gets past working years. So you could do that. There's, there's absolutely no... I mean, the hurdles of doing it at all are way greater than the hurdles of doing that. 
So the other assertion being made here that, that, that's inaccurate is that everybody gets the max of Social Security 3350, right? Well, that's not the case. Not everybody gets the max. It's based on how much you paid in. So there's also no reason you can have universal basic income and, and then still have Social Security for retirement that's based on additional monies going in or simply, again, a, a graduated system where as people age and their ability to work goes down, the amount of income that they're given as a base income goes up. So you're still expected to work. This is just to make sure you have some money and to make sure nobody's penniless, so to speak. All right. Overall, it, it, it sounds like a good idea. And as soon as we find the magical unicorn that doesn't just fart rainbows but money uh, and farts money in such a way that we don't destroy our economy through inflation, maybe we could do it. Okay. Um, here's, here's the problem for me with this. On a intellectual level, If it could work, I like the idea of it. Okay? I'm not saying it can work. I'm saying, and I'm, 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 tell, I'm going to tell you, I probably don't think that it can work. And I'll tell you why in a second. But to show that I'm open-minded, I want to point that out. The concept of people having a basic income in a modern society, especially as we move more toward a society based on automation and less on actual employment, So that people could at least, and, and, and understanding then what this would mean, no welfare at all, none, none, no food stamps, no WIC. You get rid of every single social welfare program on the planet, and everybody, unless you do, like I said, this age-based thing, gets the exact same basic income. So maybe everybody gets the same basic income up to 65, and at 65 we go, yeah, you probably can't work anymore, and we kick it up until you die, okay? Something that simple and evenly distributed. Rich people get it too. The richest person get. the only way this works, the richest person gets this. Now, is it subject to tax? Is it subject to tax? Or then you say, let's say you did what they did there, 800 bucks a month, right? $7,200 a year. You know what? If you make $7,200 a year and that's all you make, you don't pay taxes. You don't pay Jack Diddley for taxes at $7,200 a year. So then it would only actually get heavily taxed if the person was already in a high tax bracket in a progressive tax system like we have, a graduated income tax system, which, by the way, is one of the planks of the Communist Manifesto. I'm just saying, okay? So if you did that, what are the benefits Let's not worry about all the reasons it won't work. Trust me, friends, we'll get there. What are the benefits? Well, the number one benefit is the class warfare-based bullshit about, um, you know, welfare mamas and stuff like that all goes away. It just goes away. The next thing, though, is like, well, who gets it? Does every, does every child get it? Or do you get this at 18 when you're supposed to be able to support yourself? Right, And I would think that, and I haven't really looked deep into what Finland's doing yet, but I would think that it would make sense that it's at a certain age. If you're legally an adult at 18, that's when you get this money. You, you don't get more because you have kids. That's all part of the tax code already anyway. Okay, So you don't get more because you have kids. You can't go squirting out babies and making an income factor out of it. So we take away all of that stuff. Now, the other thing you would take away, it's not just the money that gets spent, but the cost of spending the money. All those government jobs that exist right now to make sure the right welfare mama gets the right welfare amount of money and people are supposedly not abusing the system, all of those workers that do all of that work could just be let go. 
That creates its own problem. What are they going to do? They're going to get their $800 bucks a month, $1,000 bucks a month, whatever it is. That ain't going to be enough. They're going to have to go find something useful to do. But if you're going to shrink government, that's going to be a recurring issue. So all of that goes away. All of the excuse that I just can't get a start goes away. Thousand bucks a month, really can't live on it, but two, three people can get together, afford rent, and, and, and start building a life. And, and, and saying, and it shouldn't be enough to live well if it was going to work. It shouldn't be enough to live well if it was going to work. It would have to be such that it's just barely enough to exist. And that if you go out then and do some work and even take something like a minimum wage job, all of a sudden it's pretty decent. Because if you, if you think about it that way, let's say we gave every American a thousand dollars a month. Well, minimum wage, you would figure out if federal minimum wage, and there's higher places, some places, right? But 725 an hour, I think that's what minimum wage is, uh, times 40. And then that would give you a week. And then you multiply that by 4.34 to get a monthly income because there's 4.34 weeks to a month over across the whole year. 1258 bucks uh, and 60 cents. So call it $1,250 plus $1,000, right? That's $2,250. That's not a great living, but it's an annual income of about $27,000. What is interesting is effectively it would be like minimum wage being $13 an hour for people that worked and at least made minimum wage. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but if I just had $1,000 a month show up at my house, I, I would be okay with the money showing up initially anyway. Okay, So all of that makes it seem like this is legitimately a, a, an idea that, that could be good. And, and here's the thing. A lot of things could be good but never will be good. In fact, there will be absolute disasters because there's these, these pesky things called facts and uh, things like economics that get in the way of this. So let's talk about doing this, not in a little socialist utopia like Finland, uh, that can they can have other nations take care of its defense, basically, etc. Um, let's talk about doing it in a nation like the United States, with a much larger population, over 300 million people, and, and what that actually means. Well, there's about 276 million Americans over 18 in our country today, Uh, based on the population estimates. And I, I don't know how many of those would not qualify because they're illegal aliens or immigrants or things like that that are not yet citizens. Because if we did it the way Finland says they're going to do it, none of those people would qualify. You just can't come here and get your universal income. You have to be a citizen of this country to get your income uh, under this program. You, you would, you'd think that this would be financially impossible. It's actually not. $276 billion. dollars. Um, It's a huge portion of the government's budget, but it's not like you. if you wanted to do it, you, you, you couldn't get it done. In fact, in fact, if you add up the total cost of welfare in America today, it's $152 billion. So if we took $276 billion and just said, we're just going to get rid of that, we're just not going to have it. It's not going to exist. We'll talk about what that means, though, for how practical this is. Then we only actually need $124 billion to put a $1,000 check into the hands of every American citizen out there every month in perpetuity. Of course, we're going to have to have raises in the future because of inflation, and boy, that's going to really hit us hard when, when we start examining that. But it's not financially impossible. 
It's just not. I've checked and double-checked the math, and basically, if you put a if you multiply something by a thousand, you add three zeros to it. So if you start with 276 million adults, you add three zeros to 276 million, right? Except there's there's one little problem there. There's just one little problem there. That that's a month. That's a month of universal income. So if we multiply that by 12, 3.3 trillion dollars is what it would take to do this and and then get rid of 150 billion dollars wealth wealth worth of welfare gee the numbers just don't work out anymore do they i know we'll, we'll tax all the rich people yeah <laughs> you could tax all the rich people at 100 percent and you couldn't do this for one year not to mention destroying the economy because they wouldn't have any money, their companies would be broke, etc. But the money doesn't exist to do this. You'd have to print it. The entire budget for 2015 is $3.8 trillion. $3.8 trillion. So you, you, you would literally have, what, $500 billion to run the entire federal government. $500 billion? Yeah. Yeah, five hundred billion left to run the whole government. Everything else. The, the, the problems with that are multiple. Like we start out with the uh, the military budget alone is five hundred ninety eight billion. So you're a hundred billion short of just the military. Uh, we have no budget for general government, education, Medicare, and health because we're replacing that, right? Veterans benefits. Uh, we're not replacing Medicare and health. We, we, we just decided you can't do that unless you did. Okay, then that, that gives you $66 billion you can cut off. Veterans benefits are $65 billion a year. Housing and community benefits, I guess we might be able to cut that off because those are technically welfare programs. International affairs, $49 billion, $40 billion. Energy and environment's $40 billion. Science is a $29 billion budget. Social Security, unemployment, and labor, that would go away. We don't whopping $29 billion. Remember, we already factored that in. Transportation, food and agriculture. So would this be terrible in some ways? I mean, if we gave everybody a grand a month and all that was left was $500 billion, we'd have to cut the military by about uh, 8%, and that would be the only thing we could do. I don't know. I guess it'd be one way to shrink government, wouldn't it? Now, at least I remind you that um, that $3.8 trillion we're spending this year, we don't actually have that. The deficit this year is $426 billion. So the deficit, what we don't have this year, is almost as much as what would be left to, to, to run the whole government. So financially, the numbers just don't work. The money's not there unless you print it. And if you think we can just print it, well, that has its own problems, doesn't it? Okay. Let's talk about some other problems with this. There's a lot of stuff being brought up as problems that aren't really the problems. You know, one are it would, it would disincentivize working for, for small amounts of money, for taking minimum wage jobs and all. I think it actually would incentivize people to take low-income jobs and get a start. Because you have the money, it's guaranteed you're not going to lose it. See, if I have $1,000 worth of welfare... And I go take a job working at Jack in the Box, for instance, making twelve hundred, fifteen hundred bucks a month. Uh, and after I pay taxes on it, I'm back down about a grand. You take my grand away, I'm back where I was. Now I'm working for the same money in a job that I, that sucks. So I don't actually think that's the problem. The problem is the overall economics. Let's say there was a magic unicorn that farted the money, and the money was there, and we could do it. Well, what happens is you give everybody a grand a month, and they go out and they start, you know doing whatever they can do with that, 
And you have, even without printing money, a natural inflation. When people have money and spend more, the cost of goods goes up because people can afford more. And very quickly, you know, a thousand dollars a month in income right now is pretty much a poverty existence, uh, but it would become absolute poverty. Like things would cost enough to just eat up that very, very quickly because that's how economies run. I know we'll put pricing controls in. That doesn't work. It never has. See, when I said I like the idea of this, there's a lot of things that would be very positive if you could find a way to do it. I just don't know that you can find a way to do it. I think if you could give every human being of adult age a, 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 a guaranteed income that was enough to make sure they could at least eat ramen noodles and live in a nice tent, right? Put gas in their car and live in, live in a camper, right? And, and at least they could do that and be relatively okay and not much more. And about this time in, in the world, it's about that. Now, there's some really frugal people who've gotten really smart and figured out how to use travel trails and stuff. They could actually live really good on a thousand dollars a month. They're the exception. Most people aren't going to live that way. Okay. So if you could do it without destroying the economy, without creating a, a massive inflationary market, then you, you actually could make everything better with this concept. Of course, I think if we gave everybody magical powers to be able to like create food out of thin air with no energy uh, or to heal the sick by laying hands on them or whatever, that that would also be good for society, and it's a wonderful fiction. I'm not actually close to the concept. I've never seen anybody present how the concept could work financially how it could work financially, what it would actually require, if there's any hope that it ever could work, is a complete change of the monetary system. The, the monetary system would have to be completely altered in, in the way that it even functions. And this is what I think that most people that are of the liberal persuasion that think this is a great idea. We'll just tax Donald Trump and we'll be able to pay for it. Trump couldn't pay for an hour of it, okay? That, that's about how far $4 billion to go there. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that we actually have something sort of like this, though the numbers are much smaller. Uh, in the United States right now, there is a state where you will get a check from the government every year uh, since 1980, I think, or 82, somewhere around there. Anyway, this has been the case. And as long as everything stays the way that it is, you can pretty much rest assured you're going to get uh, your check. Um, and that is Alaska. And it's been as low as 900 bucks, and it's been as high as $2,000. But that's annually, as far as I know, anyway. And that is because Alaska is a relatively small state in population. Uh, they have very large oil reserves. And what they do is they take a portion of the profit from leasing the oil rights, and they return it to its citizenry. And, and that means that there's actually something of value that's collectively owned in the state, And then that state takes that collective value and distributes it to its people. This is actually not uh, a forcible redistribution of wealth. It's actually a, one of the ways that this can in some way work because the money comes from private entities that willingly choose to pay for the oil. 
The oil is seen as the state's property, therefore it's the people of the state's property, and therefore the profits from its, its sale and distribution, and not all of the profits, because obviously the oil company sucks it out of the ground and then sells it and they make a profit. Only the profit from allowing the extraction uh, is then considered public income. So public income is one way this could work, but probably won't ever work wholesale because not every state has the ability to do this. On some level, Texas sort of does, but not anywhere near as much because far more of the land in Texas that has oil being extracted from it is owned privately. And same with gas, right? So I actually received a pretty good chunk of change for the gas underneath my house when I lived in Arlington, Uh, when they began doing extraction there because it was considered my land and therefore my gas rights that I had to be paid for. Now, that's not necessarily not the case in, in, in Alaska. It's that there's so much land that's public land that also has oil available underneath it. I don't know the individual cases and such, but I would imagine that mineral rights either do or do not convey the same way they do in, in, in most of the other states. So if a state or a nation had an intrinsic product of value that it was receiving income from outside sources and took that and delivered it to its people, that would actually be one way it would be financially viable. But in a, in a population of you know 300 million, it's never going to add up to a universal basic income. And it's also going to be subject to what the Alaska model subject to, pricing fluctuations on the market. So when oil goes down, Alaska citizens get less money. When oil goes up, they get more money. And as their reserves are depleted, they'll get less and less and less and less and less and less. And if we ever transition from an oil-based economy, which we can only hope that someday we will, um, then what do they get? They got nothing, so it's not worth anything anymore. So if states started doing this with oil and gas reserves, it actually incentivizes us to stay on oil and gas and fossil fuels as long as possible. Uh, whereas I think we should open up the, the free market and figure out a way to get out of there Not because I want to save polar bears, but because it makes sense if we can actually produce energy in more viable ways. And right now, we can't. We can't. We certainly don't need to do things that disincentivize the exploration to figure out how to, though. So the Alaska model works for Alaska because of a unique situation. Low population, high reserves. Okay, Most of the states don't have anything like that that they could do that with. But, again, I like the idea. I just don't know how it's possible. I think you'd have to go to a monetary system that was designed to work for that model, is what you would have to do. Right now, the current monetary system is designed so that banks control the money, that banks can actually profit by printing money, by selling money into circulation, and the more elite you are, the greater access to money you have. Not necessarily money that you, like, here's your money, you get to keep it, but if you want to leverage money, The higher you are in the in the system, the less it costs you to leverage money, and the more guaranteed ways there are for you to leverage money. Right now, banks are, are, are pretty much getting money for next to nothing and can just reinvest it into U.S. Treasury bonds and make a, make money just in the difference. Okay, Not to mention loaning it in mortgages and, and how that's multiplied in the fractional reserve system and all, but even just the basic incest that creates the illusion of people still buying U.S. government debt by the U.S. government loaning the money 
to the banks, actually through the Federal Reserve at next to nothing in interest, and then the bank's making, you know, a quarter of a point in interest. It doesn't matter if it's done in the trillions of dollars or billions of dollars, right? And, and you didn't pay anything to get it. And there's no risk associated with you. You, you. I'll take a few hundred million dollars a month this way. That's fine. And then we can create the whole illusion that it's working. That monetary system cannot be used to do this. A gold-backed currency cannot be used to do this. It would actually have to be something like a Bitcoin with a known cap and a cap and fractionalize situation where money actually becomes more powerful over time. It's the opposite of inflation. It would have to be a deflationary economy to counteract the inflation okay, that's inherent to everybody having money. So you'd have to incentivize saving for this to work. And you can only incentivize saving in a deflationary economy. You, you incentivize debt in an inflationary economy. And you incentivize spending in an inflationary economy. So th th this is one of those things like, could that be done? It probably could. Will our government and the people in power ever do something like this in a way that would get it done? No, because it would take all of the power away from them. It would, it would stop so much class war, warfare, so much inner fighting, and, and, and people would basically be seen as you have an intrinsic worth as a being. And it, it, by giving you the ability to purchase items, you'll become an active member in an economy, and therefore you'll actually contribute to the economy. And you'll have to see to yourself. You don't get a free house. You don't get a free car. You don't get a free phone. You don't get free health care. You get a base amount of income for, for existing An existence income. That's what we're talking about here. And again, and a, it, this is kind of like anarchy in a way. And people are like, that's the antithesis of anarchy. No, that's not what I mean. So anarchy absolutely works for individuals who choose to figure out how to make it work for themselves. But right now, anarchy cannot work as a global system Because there's too much control in the system, there's too much dependence on the system, and the system's not willing to move in that direction yet. There's a very small number of people who are willing to say, this is how I want to live, and back it up with the ethics necessary to go along with it. So we do it anyway because it's the right choice. Okay, But it could work. There's no reason anarchy can't work globally. There's no reason it can't be a better thing than what we have right now, except people aren't willing to do it yet. Okay? So that's how this is. There's no reason it can't be done other than it can't be done. <laughs> I know that sounds like doublespeak, but it's really not. There is no mechanism nor will for it to be done. And right now all it is is basically adding to class warfare as a game and making people feel like, well, sure, they could afford to give me $1,000 a month. Of course they can. Of course they can afford to give you $1,000 a month. They can't afford to give everybody a $1,000 a month. I know, Jack, what we'll do is, yeah, we won't take it away from people when they get to a certain, you know, like small amount of income. But if they get up to a really high level of income, let's say $100,000 a year, then we'll take it away from them. It's kind of like a reverse tax. There's not enough people that go over these higher income thresholds to make up the difference in the cost. It's a rounding error. Majority of people in this country make less than that. Well, we'll do it at thirty thousand. Well, then, then what you're going to have is a whole bunch of people make it damn sure they make twenty nine thousand dollars a year. Right? Then you're disincentivizing work. Then you're disincentivizing entrepreneurship, right? Because now I'm going to have to go from thirty to forty two before I break even, and the system breaks apart, falls apart.
right? Because I have no real incentive to do that until I believe I can make 52. Then I can be ahead. And I better not have to work that hard for it or I'll just keep my money. Thank you. I'll just take less hours or whatever it is. So it's a wonderful fiction. And I know I spent a lot of time on it today. But see, it's important to tear things apart that way. And I don't mean tear them apart as in destroy them. I mean tear them apart by pulling them apart. Actually run numbers and actually figure out in the most basic level, does this work? And I, I think what you have to realize is that it does show a fundamental flaw in our financial system. How we actually create money. How debt actually creates money. How interest on the debt actually is necessary for more money to be created to pay the interest on the debt. And the fact that something that you'd want to do that should be mathematically possible, maybe not comfortable, but it should be, it should be, you should be able to do this if you wanted to. In our current monetary system, it can't happen. It won't happen. It'll never happen. And could you build a monetary system that would make this work? Sure. I think you absolutely could build a monetary system that was actually tied to population size that actually would fluctuate and balance currency to that end and allow for additional value creation, but there's no incentive for anybody to do it. Because it benefits everybody that doesn't have money, and it does a little bit of good for everybody, like let's say at the upper income levels, all the way up until you're just barely affluent. But for the financial elites that actually run everything, control everything, own you, own your Congress, own your Senate, own the President... The people that actually write laws to actually keep themselves in power, it does them, there's no benefit to them whatsoever. So you'd have to have all, the, the 10% of psychopaths that run the world have an epiphany of, of morality and decide that they wanted to do this, even though it actually would end up hurting them in the end. Not going to happen. Well, I know we'll take away the power and make them do it. I'm sorry, that's not going to work either. That's not going to happen. So I think we'll wrap up there. And uh, I, I want you to continue to develop critical thinking skills and be able to, to, to pick apart issues like this. And to be able to do so, like it, it's really easy for me to just out of hand say, this is just stupid. Okay, this doesn't work. Because I already know before I go through everything we just went through today that this can't work in our current system. I already know that. And I already know any kind of like, we'll advocate for getting it done, man, is not going to work either. But if I just say, ah, it's bullshit, it won't work, well, that doesn't actually lead me anywhere positive. Because what you might then say to yourself is, could a micronation do this? Could a virtual nation do this? Could a virtual nation create an environment where there's a profit for the nation that redistributes a, a, a income to its residents, and those residents have to be useful in some manner to the virtual nation and prove their usefulness. Because like the Alaska income, if you're not a resident 365 days, like if you're a, a snowbird type guy, you don't get it, right? You have to be a resident. Oh, there's requirements to actually get that income. I'm sure Finland will have requirements to get your 800 bucks. So could a virtual nation create an environment where if you are in that virtual nation and you are an active business owner in that nation that generates income within the economy and creates the incentive for other outside entities to do business with that nation, that then you get a read and, and Well, then it's just the power elite again. Not necessarily. 
You could build the system to not allow for it. I don't know. We're not going to go down that road today. It's a complicated one. Uh, do remember, I want to do a show, a follow-up on small batch uh, mead making, cider making, and fruit wine making, and all the stuff that goes with blending those things together tomorrow. If I get enough questions, send those questions, send those questions to Jack at the Survival Podcast dot com and uh I'll take a look at them and see if I can get like you know if I can get ten questions that would be enough. TSPC in the subject line with TSPC cider or mead. Uh that way I'll know that that's for that and I'll see if I can get that done for you tomorrow. Now I want to close up today um with a song that's just befitting to the concept of just taxing the rich and giving everybody uh, a universal income and that it can be done and that we don't need to listen to Jack and uh, we just could do it if we had the will to do it and we can get it done in our government and it would be great for everybody. Um, it's about as likely as seeing the subject of today's song. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. In a land called Hanali Little Jackie Paper Loved that rascal pup And brought him strings and sealing wax And other fancy stuff Oh, pup the magic dragon Lived by the sea And frolicked in the autumn mist In a land called Hanali In a land called Hanali Together they would travel On a boat with billowed sail Jackie kept a lookout Perched on Puff's gigantic tail Noble kings and princes Would bow whenever they came Pirate ships would lower their flags When Puff roared out his name
Mist in a land called Hanalee.